Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. We're in the series called The Very Next Thing, and the premise of the series is that Jesus had a next for everyone. Uh, he has a next for you. He has something that he's working on in your life. There's a practice, a habit, a belief, a change. There's a, there's a next. It could be something you need to start. It could be something you need to stop. It could be the fact that life has been incredibly difficult and you're in a season of life that has been so hard that you just need to experience the love and, and embrace of God, that you just need to accept that. Maybe that it's as, it's as simple as that as, as far as what's next for you. But there is a next, and most often we know what it is. It's just that things get in the way. Things, things bog us down. In week one, we talked about how sometimes the, the next thing we avoid because it's hard. And then Steve talked about last week, sometimes we just neglect the small things. And we're, we have two more sermons in this series, and I'm going to talk today on something I think is incredibly important, particularly for me. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 15. I want you to notice a few things. We're going to walk through this text, and I just want to draw out some eternal spiritual truths from this text that I think are incredibly valuable as we process what is next for us. And here's the important thing. Believe me, I would love to be able to walk around the room and look each of you in the eye and say, here's what's next for you. And I have some ideas for some of you, but I'm not sure that they're the same as God's. Uh, We have to be open to that. We have to be willing, and then we have to realize that there are hurdles in the way. There are barriers blocking us from taking that step. And in some cases, it's been barriers that we've allowed to block us from taking that step for months, years, decades. God has been speaking to you pushing you, encouraging you, and it's just been no thank you for decades. And we want to talk about that. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees, oh, you know, when those guys show up, it's going to be fireworks. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked. Now, just real quick, I want you to know something. Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee, a little town called Gennesaret. He's not near Jerusalem. In fact, when I got on Google Maps and plotted this out, I'll show you where they are. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they walked from Jerusalem to up near the Sea of Galilee. It's 102 miles. They walked 102 miles to ask Jesus a question. Now, in their minds, it was a rhetorical question. They weren't asking Jesus, like, hey, what do you think about this? We want your opinion. They were mad at Jesus. It would take them two days. It's a 37-hour walk. Google was like, I don't think you want to walk this walk right now, considering the current situation in the world. Just maybe don't do that. And I was like, I'm not going to. I just wanted to see how far it was. The Pharisees were so mad at Jesus, they walked 100 miles. Like, I get upset at things, but sometimes when I leave one room to the next, I've kind of forgotten what I'm upset about. I still feel upset, but I don't remember the particulars of why I'm mad. Can you imagine being 100 miles mad? Have you ever been 100 miles mad? Maybe if I drove, but certainly not walk. 
I would be so tired by the end of it, I wouldn't have the energy to be upset at Jesus anymore. They were 100 miles mad. So it must be big. It must be life and death. It must be the fate of the world hangs in the balance as to what they're upset about. I was out of town, driving in an unfamiliar place, unfamiliar city, in a rental car. And I didn't realize that my lane ended and merged with the lane next to me. And so without realizing it, I had cut off the person behind me. There was a lady driving behind me and I had cut her off. And I didn't know it until I realized, you know, there's headlights right in my rear view mirror. And then I'm like, ooh, whoops. So I hit the gas to speed up to give her some distance. And then she hit the gas to follow me. And I thought, oh no, we've got one of those road rage situations. And so I'm thinking, what do I do? So I think, all right, so I take a, a right turn. She takes a right turn, right on my tail. So I think, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm convinced she's following me at this point, and it turns out she was. I'm gonna peel into a parking lot, make a quick U-turn, and then barrel out the other way, and she won't know what happened. And it'll be like, whoa, you know, literally like a Fast and the Furious movie. So I have this worked out in my mind, peel into the parking lot, Parking lot's too narrow for me, so I have to do a three-point turn. So, you know, you have to, by the time you have to put a car in reverse, it's really hard to, like, just really lose your tail. So, evidently, I wouldn't be a good CIA agent. And uh, she was at the entrance of the parking lot and kind of blocked me in. And I thought, oh, well, it's going down. Something's going to happen. So, I'm apologetic. I am totally in the wrong. I cut her off. I didn't mean to do this. So, I rolled down my window. I'm sure I didn't do that. It's a newer car. I rolled down my window. <laughs> I don't know. I pressed the button, rolled down my window. She rolled down her window. And I know it's my fault. I have so much adrenaline, I squeak out an apology. It's kind of shouted because you're from one car to the other. And I'm like, I'm sorry. It was my fault. I'm new here. And it totally caught her off guard. She didn't know what to do. But she still had all this anger momentum build up. So she's kind of yelling at me. And she's like, well, you really scared me. And I'm like, I know. I didn't mean to. And then we were kind of like reconciling. Kind of, she was like, well, okay, I appreciate your apology. And then she rolled up her window. She didn't do that. She did the thing, rolled up her window. And, and, and I was like, have a nice day. You know, it's like, it's like that tone was this whole conversation because she was mad. I don't know if you've ever been mad like that where something happened and it just, it triggered and the, the rational part of your brain kind of shut off and you maybe followed somebody into an, a parking lot and had this weird yelling match at them. hundred miles mad. Have you ever been a hundred miles mad about something? Well, what are the Pharisees and teachers of the law mad about? Look at what they say. They came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, we've all been in a public restroom. You have had this happen, and you see somebody come out of the stall, look at the sink, and then something happens in their brain. I don't know what, and then they exit the room. This happened to me at the airport recently, and that intrusive thought was like, what if I just followed him out onto the concourse? And was like, unclean, unclean. <laughs> he did not wash his hands. Don't touch anything. You know, and I have no idea what he did in the stall, but it was, it's gross. So you're like, well, I don't know that I would be 100 miles mad at Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands, but understand, that's not what's going on here. It's not about hot water and singing happy birthday twice to make sure that you've washed your hands long enough. The Pharisees did not walk 102 miles to talk about basic hygiene. What were they talking about? Well, notice the phrase earlier, tradition of the elders. This is really important because this plays a heavy role in the interactions that Jesus had with the Pharisees and how the Pharisees thought about, about spirituality and following God, the tradition of the elders. So the Bible 
is the truth from God. We have, most of you have a Bible, maybe it's on your phone, but anybody have an actual Bible in here in the room? But it's, you know, it's maybe two or three inches thick. But that's the truth from God. Now, the truth from God can raise questions about its application. So if you think about Hebrew Bible, Old Covenant stuff, when you think about even just the Ten Commandments, they seem pretty straightforward, but there's questions raised by what God commanded through those commandments. When he, when he says, don't murder, then people have to wrestle. Well, when, when God said, do not murder, well, what was he thinking in terms of self-defense? What was he thinking in terms of joining the military? What was he thinking about capital punishment? And you can see how it begins to get sort of intricate and you have to think through what do the what does that simple idea do not murder honor your father and mother well, what, what does that mean how do you navigate that what do you do so it raises questions so the 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 predecessors of the pharisees and the teachers of the law people who had come centuries millennia before them had begun to compile a collection of how to do what God had asked them to do, how to. It was a guidebook, and they had lined everything out in mind-numbing detail. It's like, here's what God said, and here's how we apply it. Here's what it means. Here's what it doesn't mean. Here's how we live it out. Here's how we work it into our lives. This is a huge collection. It's a whole library. So it would be questions like, exactly how much does a person have to give to be considered generous? Exactly how do you pray so that your prayer is heard by God? Exactly how should you worship and what songs should you sing and what ways should you sing them? Now, that on the surface sounds helpful. Over thousands of years, they'd worked out every particular detail and avenue and question, and they'd compiled it into this huge collection, this huge library that they called the Mishnah, and it was the traditions, and it was how to live out God's expectations. There was nothing left to doubt. There were no gray areas. Everything was black and white down to the last possible detail. Have you ever noticed that occasionally things can get so technical that they stop being helpful? Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever run into a policy, maybe at your workplace, that is so technical it becomes burdensome rather than helpful and it becomes a pain rather than something that is good for the company? Years ago, Karina and I had to take a three and a half hour class about how to install a child safety seat and then put a kid into a child safety seat. Three and a half hours. Now, I can give you the two second version you put the seat in, you buckle it, you put the child in, you buckle it. But they managed to stretch this information over three and a half hours. And it was a mandated class that we had to do as part of foster care stuff. But everything in this class was by the book, highly technical. And so they would ask us these, these questions, these scenarios. They would say, should you buckle your kid in upside down? And you'd be like, no, I don't think we should. You know, Should you buckle them to the top of the car? No, I don't think they should. But they would ask us questions that maybe weren't quite so obvious. Let me give you one. This is a real scenario from the class that they asked us. So this is a scenario. Teacher said, there's a flash flood coming. You have seven kids. <laughs> there are only six seat belts. What are your best option to safely and securely get them buckled, right? So now the, the, the answer that I wanted to give is, I wanted to raise my hand and say, you say there's a flash flood, right? 
and why don't we just stuff the kids in the van and go, right? But that's not the correct answer. That's going to get us flunked, and we'll have to take the class over. The correct answer is you choose which kid you like the least, and you just take the rest of them. No, that's not it either. That's not it either. The correct answer is that you double buckle two of the smallest children and you make sure that everything's sound and secure and make sure there's a three-point harness on everything else and then you calmly get in the driver's seat and you adjust the rearview mirror and you look behind you at the impending flash flood, I guess, and then you slowly take off at a, at a, at a safe rate of speed making sure you use your turn signals. That's the correct answer. And you're just like, that is not helpful. You've gotten so technical that you've prioritized this thing that is of lesser importance over this thing that is of more importance. Now, in this Mishnah, in this tradition, in this collection of books, they had worked everything out to such minute detail that it began to be burdensome. And one of the things, the thing addressed in this text is they had worked out details about hand washing. Again, not about hygiene. God made the priests in the temple cleanse themselves before they served in the temple. And so what they had done, if God made the priests do that, well, maybe God would like it if other people would also wash at certain times. Well, what if we did it before every meal? That seems sensible. We should wash and cleanse ourselves before every meal. Well, how do you wash and cleanse yourselves before every meal? Well, you need to make sure, and this is in the Mishnah, you need to make sure that you have a certain amount of water. So they had settled on eight ounces of water at minimum. So you make sure you have to add eight ounces of water. And then, well, wait a second, but what kind of vessel would you use to pour the water onto somebody else's hands? They didn't have running water. Well, you need to make sure that the vessel you use isn't cracked because you're doing something in honor of God. So make sure that you don't have a cracked clay pot or pitcher in order to do this. Well, but what happens if you're, you're there by yourself? Can you pour the water yourself or could a child do it? Well, how about somebody who's unclean? And so they'd created all these rules and I guarantee you what had happened, this intricate, complicated process. And what had happened is Jesus had been invited over to somebody's house. He was often invited even to Pharisees' houses. And a Pharisee would have a servant who came in and provided the right amount of water. Let's say it was something like this, provided the right amount of water for each guest and pour the right, right amount of water right onto the first person and the right amount of water onto the second person. All these guests that were filling this room and they'd finally gotten to Jesus and Jesus looked at that servant, the person about to pour the water and thousands of years of tradition and Jesus said, no thanks, I'll pass. And the room must have gotten deadly silent. I'll pass. <laughs> Jesus, you don't just pass. We have worked out all these details. You can't just say, no thanks. I'm good. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And so Jesus said, thanks, but no thanks, went up to Gennesaret, and it just got the Pharisees steamed because centuries, millennia of tradition. And Jesus said, ah, not for me. I don't know how many of you know this. Minnesota's a little bit of a odd duck. I guess I could say gray duck when it comes to the way our culture in Minnesota as it relates to the rest of the United States. Here in Minnesota, when you go to somebody's house, you typically take off your shoes, right? You take off your shoes. If somebody from the South comes up and they're not expecting it, it's shocking, shocking. I did not wear the socks for this, right? I don't know. This is, you're, this is really throwing me for a loop. 
Just imagine us Minnesotans, we're all used to this. We all know the drill. We all know what's supposed to go on. Somebody who does know the drill, who grew up in Minnesota, it's deep winter. They've just walked up your driveway through a bunch of snow and muck, and they come inside, and you say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Here's a place for your shoes. And they just say, no, thank you, and just proceed to walk through your house, put their feet up on your coffee table. You'd be like, you might be 100 miles mad at them. You might be furious at them. Who do they think there are? they are? That is hundreds of years of Minnesota tradition, and they're just flushing it down the drain. Or maybe this will happen here this coming week as you gather together with your family for Thanksgiving dinner, and you, you go to your grandmother's house, and your dear, sweet grandmother has been making the stuffing for 58 years. The recipe is perfected. Nothing <laughs> can be changed. Nothing can be adjusted. It is perfect. And just imagine as your grandmother or your grandfather's carving the turkey and your grandmother's setting down the stuffing for everybody to enjoy, your cousin and his new wife said, oh, none for us. We brought our vegan-free, gluten, soy, non-dairy <laughs> stuffing here. The family might be a hundred miles mad because you are changing the way things are supposed to be. And you can kind of begin to understand the Pharisees and where they're coming from. Oh, Jesus just says, nope, I'm not doing that. Why not, Jesus? Why not? Let's pause just for a second. And let's talk about the concept of religious drift. I don't know how else to say this, so this is the best phrase that came to my mind. Religious drift. Every Christian movement starts the same. Every Christian movement starts the same. It's a desire to get back to something real and authentic and true. It's a recognition that there's been trappings of tradition and habit that have bogged down the, the beauty of the truth that, that, that is foundational to who we are and what we believe. This is how the churches of Christ began. It was a desire to say, I, we don't like all those labels. We don't like all that junk. We don't like all that stuff. Can we just cast it all off? And can we start fresh? But what happens is over time, things start institutionalizing. And the way somebody found their way back to something true and substantial and real, the institution starts protecting that way. Well, we have to do it that way. Well, why? Well, because that's what my grandfather thought. And if it was good enough for him, it was probably good enough for Jesus. So I need to go to a church that has that same tradition, that same habit. In fact, it gets so bad for some people that they can't even abide going to a church where people think it might be different. Not that the behavior or the practice is different, but that there are people in the room that don't precisely agree with them. Over time, things start institutionally. And the fresh turns into habit and tradition, and the institution protects that tradition rather than saying we want to elevate the thing that is most important, the thing that, that we started with. And it just happens so slow, you don't even notice a well-intentioned idea to remind people of some truth about God becomes a burden, becomes a habit, it becomes a comfort. And that thing sometimes gets elevated over what is good and true and real. So Jesus has just said no thanks to thousands of years of tradition. Let me give you a scenario similar to my class at child safety class. You've created a really awkward social situation. You made the religious leaders really angry. 
What are your best options to safely and securely get out of this tense situation? Most of us would be like, oh, I didn't realize that meant so much to you. I'm so sorry. I want to honor your traditions. My bad. I'm, I'm sorry. I will, you want me to wash hands? No big deal. I will wash my hands. No problem. Some of you contrarians would be like, chill out. It's no big deal. Jesus doesn't do either. He just says this is his reply. Oh, you think I'm breaking your traditions? That's really sad. Why are you breaking God's commands? Have you ever been mad at someone? You kind of begin to confront them and you realize that they actually have more reason to be mad at you and you're kind of like, I wish I had never brought this up. You know, I wish I had never, and I just want to walk this back. So Jesus is like, oh, you really want to talk about traditions, guys? That's what you want to talk about? Let's talk about traditions. And the Pharisees were like, uh-oh. <laughs> we, we were mad and now we're in trouble. What happened? Matthew 15, 4, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. That was an Old Testament expectation. Didn't happen very often. People were rarely punished to this degree for cursing their father and mother. There's, I, I don't know that there's any record of it in the Old Testament. Verse 5, but you say in your traditions, in your Mishnah, that if anyone declares what might have been used to help father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Let me give you the quick version. I had a much longer version, and I knew I was going to lose people, and they'd be get, get, get bored and upset. Quick version is this. Kids, as their parents aged, were responsible for their parents' well-being. Aging parents can get expensive. And so children who didn't want to wipe out their bank account were like, I can't just ignore my responsibility to my parents. How do I get out of this? So over the course of decades, century, millennia, they'd come up with a solution. And the solution was this. What if you promised all your money to God after you die? This is key. After you die. And so when your parents say, hey, honey, we really need some help. Dad can't work anymore, or we need a place to stay, assisted living, whatever the first century version of that was. You could say to your parents in the sight of man and God, I'm so sorry, I would love to help you, but I just promised all my money to God after I died. I can't give it to you. You wouldn't want me to give it to you and take it away from God, would you? And the parents would be like, no, I guess not. I guess we'll figure out something else. We'll do something else. And what Jesus is saying is you took that tradition you took that Mishnah, you took that library of books, and you beat up your parents with it. Your traditions are getting in the way of living out God's expectations. Your traditions are wrong. You want to bring up traditions? Well, here we go. It's religious drift. It's, it's a little like this. Maybe this is a better example for some of you. This is a life hack, by the way. Don't do this, but maybe, well, whatever. You do you. Dear mom and dad, I know how much you love me. I know how much you want me to be happy. So for Christmas this year, I'm using the money I would have spent on your gift on a gift for me instead. Love your child. First child would never do this, so I had to put middle child. <laughs> so Patrick, okay, Patrick, <laughs> we, don't, we don't live by the old covenant expectations. We don't have this huge library of traditions. What does any of this have to do with us? What does any of this have to do with me? Liam and I were playing a board game. This has been a few years ago. He's probably five years old. And it's a board game called Mr. Mouth. Anybody ever played this game? Mr. Mouth. It's a spinning frog's head that opens and shuts automatically. And there are four little frog legs. And you have to use this little mechanism to flick flies into the opening and shutting mouth of the frog, Mr. Mouth. And Liam's probably five years old. I'm an adult. 
So I am mopping the floor with him. <laughs> I am destroying him. I am like 100% and Liam zero. So you can tell his little brain starting to work over time. And then eventually he just grabs up all his little pieces and he just puts them in the mouth by hand. And I, I'm like, Liam, that is cheating. And here's his, his five-year-old logic comeback response. I was like, Liam, that's cheating. And he said, but you were winning. I'm like, well, <laughs> I understand the desire to cheat, but the rules still apply, I guess, for some of us until we start losing. Now, later in the game, he did it again, and then <laughs> I protested again. I'm like, Liam, that's cheating. And he's like, well, I did it before. So now he set precedent, <laughs> right? I, you see, there we go. Tradition. We have begun the precedent, and now I can do it again and again and again. What happens to us, the church, when we care more about our comfort than the calling God has given us to live out in the community? And we spend more time and effort preserving something rather than obeying someone. What happens when we, as Christians, gather together and we make our preferences the highest priority and we work so hard to preserve those preferences, sometimes over and above people? What happens when our traditions, good as they were, start to come in conflict with truth? I can tell you, a lot of us struggle with this. Let me give you a safe example. <laughs> Let me give you a safe example this morning. A fellow preacher and I were talking. We were exchanging horror stories, and he was telling me some terrible things that had happened at his church with new visitors and guests. And I said, well, I just want you to know every member at our church is amazing. They're just incredible, and they would never do anything weird or silly, and I'm so sorry you have to go through that, but I wouldn't know what it's like. <laughs> He's... He said that one Sunday, a first-time visitor came, and it was a mom, single mom by herself, and four kids in tow, and this was the first time she'd ever been here, and I don't know what her spiritual background was, and I mean, that's hard enough for a dozen different reasons, just to, just to be a, a mom with four kids, four young kids in this case, doing anything, much less church. And the, the only seat that was open for their size was one toward the front. And these kids were not used to going to church. And they were just a, a, little, a little rowdy during the service. They were squirmy, noisy, distracted, you know, all that. They were kids. You know where this is going? Yeah, some of you do. A member after church came up to that single mom and just really kindly, politely said, oh, hey, we're really glad you're here, but your kids, they were, they, they were pretty distracting. You, you probably shouldn't sit in the front row until you can get them under control. And if you can't, maybe wait till they're a little bit more behaved before you, you come back and visit again. I would be a hundred miles mad at that person. I would be a hundred miles mad at that person. That member, that member thought they're doing something good. We're here to worship God. We're here in this sanctuary gathered with the saints. We're here to sing songs that I like, that I, that I want to sing, that I want to hear. I don't want to be distracted. My heart can't worship God adequately if some kid is squirming. Nobody else is going to say it, so I'm going to bite the bullet, and I'm going to be the one that goes up to that single mom and says, unless you can get your kids under control, you shouldn't come back here. That's how she heard it, of course. 
as polite as you want to say it, that's how she heard it. That member thought they were honoring God, but that member was preserving their preferences. Because what would honor God is to love a person. To love a person. He'd taken a way of worshiping and elevated over what really mattered to God. Now, I say that's a safe example, but hey, I get annoyed when phones go off. I get so annoyed. You got every time somebody's phone goes off or starts ringing during church, I, I can see people in the audience stiff and they're like, oh, Patrick, please don't say something. You know, please just, please just ignore it. You know, it's, an, it's annoying. But is that more important? Is, is that distraction more important than, than loving a person and making them feel like they belong and they're accepted by God? No, of course not. Jesus isn't done. Matthew 15, 7, 9, 7 through 9. You hypocrites, Jesus says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they're somewhere else. They're, they're somewhere far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human traditions set up over centuries, well-intentioned, but have obscured what God truly wants from his people. Here's my favorite part of the story, Matthew 15, 12. Then the disciples came to Jesus. They came to him, and they're like, hey, did you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? What? They were offended when I called them hypocrites and said their worship was in vain? Really? Man, so sensitive. No, of course he knew they were offended. He was trying to offend them. Here's the thing that's easy to miss in this story. Here's the thing that Christians miss. Here's the thing that I've missed for many years. Jesus, 100 million percent, deeply, truly, fully loved the Pharisees. Loved them. Was brokenhearted over their, their elevation of tradition over truth. He loved them. And their self-righteousness was getting in the way of them realizing that he loved them. I came across this quote. I confess I have never read the book because it's a book about the theory of elementary education. And it's just not. But I came across a quote that I thought was so good. And it's not. This guy isn't a Christian author. He wasn't writing a Christian truth. But he used Jesus as an example of sometimes you have to de-educate someone before you can educate them. You have to break things down before you can build back up. And he said this using Jesus as an example. Trying to change people's actions will be futile unless one speaks to the underlying traits and attitudes that lead to immorality. Hence, for Jesus, moral teaching requires that self-righteousness, complacency, arrogance, and selfishness must be unlearned before morality can take root. And here's what's next for several of us in the room. What's next is you have to unlearn some hard things. You have to unlearn some complacency. We have complacent people in our church. You have to unlearn some arrogance. We have arrogant people in our church. You have to unlearn some self-righteousness and selfishness. We have self-righteous people and selfish people in our church. And you know what? That is a description of me. Self-righteous, complacent, arrogant, that's me. And when Jesus comes along and says, I wanna love you, Patrick, but we have to break some of these things down, I fight against it because it's painful. It hurts. But that's what's next for me. That's what's next, is that those things have to be unlearned before morality can take root. 
And Jesus loves us so much, he's got to deal with our self-righteousness. Sometimes love looks like Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. Let me say this. If we're following Jesus, but we have elevated comfort, preference, religious trappings, habits, traditions over or sometimes to avoid real deep obedience, then you're not following Jesus. And here's the crazy thing about the, the Pharisees is they're saying, we are following God. And what they were following was their own tradition. And they, they let that be a substitute. And that's not what we want for our church. That's not what we want. This is hard stuff that we have to break down those things that have gotten in the way of truly following, truly honoring, truly giving ourselves to God. That's a hard, hard thing. Here's the deal. We have been given truth by God. And, and this, is, this is us. This is me too. We've been given truth by God. Jesus was very clear. Let's boil the whole thing down. We love God by loving people. That's what Jesus would say over and over again. Paul would reiterate that in the book of Romans chapter 12. This is the summary of the whole law. Love God by loving people. Some of us have a huge collection of invisible traditions. And what God is asking us to do is to sweep that away and to come back to the one thing that has always and forever mattered, to love him by loving people. Some of you need to quit with the traditions, with the habits, with the elevating things that don't matter and focus on the thing that God has asked you to do, to love him through loving people.